Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. If you're like me, you're on a journey. You're looking for what brings you a sense of peace, inner strength, or simply put, what makes you feel your best. You know life's not about the big moments or the grand gestures. Yep, there are Super Bowl Sundays, but there are also all the Tuesdays or Wednesdays in between. The small interactions you have in your day-to-day, those, those are the moments that make up your life. And I want my own life to be as intentional as it can be. And I think for me, one of the keys is to learn from others what they've already learned for themselves, to take little bits and pieces of wisdom of those I admire and soak it all in. Take a tool from their toolbox and add it to my own. That's why I hand-selected each of my guests this season. These are people I wanted to talk to for my own personal growth, and I hope you'll come along on this journey with me. You know when you read a book and you cannot get it off your mind? Okay, for me, that was Rain Wilson's book. It's called Soul Boom. I picked it up, I read it, I thought about it, I talked about it, and I said to myself, this is somebody I need to sit down with. Rain is an Emmy-nominated actor, writer, producer, and New York Times bestselling author. He is best known, of course, for playing the role of Dwight, the annoying but lovable Dunder Mifflin salesman on NBC's hit series, The Office. But man, there is so much more to Rain Wilson than the hilarious roles he plays. Like so many of us, Rain is on a personal journey. In his latest book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, Rain opens up about finding and embracing his spirituality and how his profound faith has helped him to navigate the difficult times in his life. Looking at Rain from the outside, we see the high moments, the successes, the fame, the laughs on screen. But what we do not see are the struggles he faced off screen, struggles with mental health, including anxiety, addiction, and depression. At his lowest moments, Rain put in the work, looking within himself and turning to spirituality. What he found led him on a path to healing, shifting toward awe, curiosity, and gratitude, and inspiring others, including me, to do the same. Rain so beautifully shares his story, offering his unique perspective and insight with the heart and humor that only he can. He opens up about his childhood, from growing up with his father in the jungles of Nicaragua as a follower of the Baha'i faith, to the moment he knew he was funny, his path to spirituality, and how he learned to find balance and inner peace. Well, now, Rain is calling for a spiritual revolution, and I'm all ears, baby. I hope you will be, too. I'm Hoda Kotb. Welcome to Season 4 of my podcast, Making Space. Hi, Rain. I've got your book dog-eared with different colored thingies. Look at that. I know. Uh, the book is called Soul Boom, and I'm so excited to talk to you. I, I sat with Jenna after you guys were at the Aspen Ideas Fest, and she said, you've got to read the book, Soul Boom. Now, what made you decide to put this in writing, to write this book? Well, that's a complicated question. Do you have some time? I How have long so much, do we have? Uh, as much time as you need. This is your day. Well, because there's there's no really easy way to answer yeah. that question, and it, and it is really important. I think there's, first of all, for me, uh, there's a personal reason why I wrote Soul Boom, which is I've had a lot of mental health struggles through the years. I've shared about this, um, uh, especially in my 20s. I had really debilitating anxiety attacks. Mm-hmm. I dealt with a lot of uh, depression and uh, and loneliness and alienation, addiction issues. And uh, back then in the 90s, there you know, therapy, Therapy wasn't as ubiquitous as it is today, and there weren't, 
you know, really that many like self-help books or podcasts or YouTube videos or places to turn to talk about mm-hmm. mental health. And no one used the terms no. mental health in the 90s. You just kind of like sucked it up and got through it. Yeah. And so um, I had grown up a member of the Baha'i faith. My parents were Baha'is. And the Baha'i faith is very inclusive of all different faith traditions. Mm. So as a Baha'i, we read from the Quran and we read from the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible and writings of the Buddha. And so I grew up with this very kind of universalist approach to mm. spiritual knowledge and wisdom being out there in all of these different faith traditions. And so when I was suffering this way in my 20s and really lost, um, I turned to spiritual writings and kind of a spiritual mm. journey to try and find some answers for how out of balance I was. Mm-hmm. And that really was the essential spark that started me reading these texts and and studying these ideas and pondering them deeply. Mm-hmm. It came you know, from my own personal struggle. Let's talk about the Baha'i faith a little, because this is interesting. I think a lot of people would hear it and Google it, say, what is that? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your faith. Well, the Baha'i faith is, uh, you know, I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith. Um, a lot of people became Baha'is in the late 60s, early 70s, when people were really into spiritual explorations mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, it was founded in Persia, mm-hmm. Iran, in the 19th century, in the 1800s. So it's the most recent of the world religions. There's about 6 million Baha'is around the planet, Um that's not a very big number, but it's very widespread. So wherever you go in the world, there's Baha'is. You can go mm-hmm. to Mongolia or mm-hmm. Bolivia or Iceland, and there's Baha'is around, uh, which is kind of cool if you need a place to crash. <laughs> and uh, basically, Baha'is believe that there's one God. This God goes by many names, Allah or Gaia or the Great Spirit or whatever you want to call it. But there is one kind of all-loving a creative force that's beyond time and space. And the way that God communicates to humanity and helps humanity mature spiritually is by sending down divine teachers every once in a while. So Baha'is really view all of the world's major religions as one religion. Mm. It's one continuous, gradually unfolding faith Mm. that comes from the creator, from the higher power. So these great teachers like Krishna and the Buddha, like Abraham, uh, Zoroaster, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, uh, and now Baha'is believe in a new spiritual teacher who goes by the name of the title of Baha'u'llah. And that title means the glory of God. Baha'is believe that all of these teachers are teaching essentially the same message, Mm. um, coming every 500 or 1,000 years to help humanity evolve spiritually and move forward. Mm. So as a Baha'i, I am a follower of Baha'u'llah and I study the, his writings and teachings, but I also study the Bible and love Jesus. I consider myself just as much of a Christian as mm-hmm. any Christian. And I also do the same with Islam and Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of... um like I said before, it's kind of a universalist kind of idea of mm-hmm. incorporating uh, these, you know, the inspiration from all of these faiths is wedded in my book, and it's very mm-hmm. much Baha'i-inspired. It's so fascinating because I was just thinking if the world had a view where we are all kind of coming from the same seed, so let's all get it together. I mean, this is what you're essentially saying. I mean, yeah. I thought about that before, like— in Jerusalem, sometimes you'll hear the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, yeah. you'll hear the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and you'll hear the Western Wall, and it's all the wailings and chimes within a one-mile square. Yeah. And you're thinking, wow, if these three are all right here in the entire planet Earth, this is the pinpoint. Yeah. There must be some kind of common ground. It just only makes sense, you know. Yeah. And, yet yeah. All we and do I, is- I write about Jerusalem in the book about oh. a trip to Jerusalem that I took and uh, and that exact experience yeah. of like it's a couple of football fields yeah. and it's the center of all the world's all major it. religions and all of history. And it's this incredible, obviously political flashpoint, mm-hmm, the fact mm-hmm. that they're all so close. And the Baha'i 
Holy Land is north of there, but mm-hmm. not that far. Haifa, mm-hmm. Israel, and northern Israel. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. Where, uh, so when we when we go back to your early life, because that's some that's the religion was part of kind of the fabric of you. But your childhood was so fascinating to me to think of a a little boy because I have two little kids now, a little boy being raised without his mother, just mm-hmm. with his dad's influence. I mean, your yeah. mom left, and there you were, a toddler with your dad. Do you have any recollection of? of your childhood? What do you remember of those early years? My mom uh, left me and my dad. And so uh, my dad being a kind of a, he really wasn't a hippie, but a bohemian Baha'i artist Mm -hmm. type Mm -hmm. in late sixties in Seattle. He'd been living on a houseboat and working in a bookstore, uh, painting murals. And and he became a member of the Baha'i faith. And he decided to pack and up and move to the jungles of Nicaragua. So, he took me, this giant, white, weird-looking toddler from Seattle, and moved to the Caribbean coast, oh uh, the Mosquito Coast of Nicaragua, in 1968, 69. And, uh, and not long thereafter, uh, married my stepmom, who had also come down from the Seattle area. So I did have a mom kind of raising me. Mm-hmm. I don't remember like my mom leaving or anything like that, but I do remember, uh, I have some absolutely vivid memories of living in in coastal jungly Nicaragua as a little kid and running around and, you know, we had a pet sloth and you we, did? yeah, we had the monkeys running around and um, it, it was, it was pretty crazy. Did your dad explain at some, or at what point did your dad explain that your mom, because I don't know what memories you had of her, yeah. your, your birth mom really, was not here and here's why. Like, when did you hear that story? Well, that's, see, that that's kind of a crazy story. Mm-hmm. So um, he would never say why they split up. I would ask him and he would just give the vaguest answers. Well, we went our different ways and we didn't kind of see eye to eye mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It was very, very vague. So later when I'm a teenager, I have an interest in acting. And right around that same time, my birth mother, Shay, got back in touch with me when I was about 15. So oh, called you or? Just called and showed up and started writing and actually sent me like a birthday card and like started, and she kind of took an interest in me and wanted to get to know me. Pause, just that first, yeah. the initial exchange. What was that like for a teenage kid who hadn't heard from his own mother in, I don't know when? to get a card. I, I had seen her two or three times in the intervening years, yeah. but she would always say like, oh, I'm going to be back in touch and I'll see you very soon. And then I wouldn't see her for oh two or three or four years or something like that. That's heartbreaking. And it was usually like a lunch or, or getting like a popsicle or something like that. So, but, so it was, you know, I was, I was skeptical, you know, even at like 15, I was like, okay, sure. I mean, I knew she existed and she was out there running around doing She'd had a really crazy life, a really crazy life. Were you mad at her? Like, what were you? It wasn't until later that I did some, like, deeper therapy work that I was able to kind of get in touch with with some of the anger and outrage at that and— um, and what that had done to me, how it had affected me. Yeah. But I will give this to her, and I'm not making an apology statement for what she did because that's really horrible to abandon your kid. But she came back in at 15 as a teenager. I really needed a mother's influence. Hmm. She was very savvy about emotions. She had been through a lot. She had done some therapy. So she came into my life right when I really needed her. Like she came in. She helped you? She she helped me. She tried to love me as best she could. She really made an effort to fly me out and see her and come and visit and 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 to share and to call every week. And so, you know, it took me years of kind of mistrust. And as I got to trust her a little bit more in college, like she really played an important role in my life. And and I and I think that's important for people to hear, because sometimes for parents. I don't know if any are listening in this Mm -hmm. podcast, but I think uh, sometimes for parents that for whatever reason can't parent their kid, Mm -hmm. you can always come back into their life Mm -hmm. and play an important role. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, better better late than never, I guess you would say. Did you ultimately 
forgive her in words or in your soul or yeah you did yeah I have I you know I did I've done the work I've done yeah. a lot of therapy and a, and a lot of work around this stuff and like I said with the mental health issues that I mentioned earlier yeah so we have a great relationship to this day oh. she's yeah she's a wonderful woman really fascinating artist thinker yoga she, teacher she proud of you she is very proud of me, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Wow. You talked about your uh your dad and your stepmom. They were kind of who raised you along the way. So that's when you're formed. I mean, yeah. granted the first two years are important, but from two on, you're in this you end up in this home with your dad and stepmom. What was that what were you witnessing? Because I feel like sometimes we model our parenting, our loving relationship. You're like, oh, that's what love is. It looks like that. Okay. Or that's how we behave. What did they show you? Well, this is another part of my of my struggle and a, a part of my mental health journey. Um, my father passed away about three years ago uh, of heart disease during COVID. Mm. And I'm still very close to my stepmom, Kristen. But um, the whole thing of like, they did the best they could. Here's the problem. They didn't love each other. <laughs> mm. And that's... That's that's a problem in in having a marriage and a family. And I asked both of them. They stayed together. From, they got married when I was about three, and they stayed together till I left for college at eighteen. As soon as I left for college, they were like, "Boom! How fast huh. can we get a divorce?" Wow. So they stayed together for me, which I don't think is a good idea because here we are. I talked about the Baha'i faith earlier. Like, if you if you know anything about the Baha'i faith, it's all about like love and unity and mm -hmm. you know Inclusion. creating bonds and and. Uh, so we would go to these Baha'i gatherings and we'd be singing and talking about love. And then I'd come home and they would barely talk to each other. They wouldn't hug. There was a lot of acrimony and resentment and anger seething in the house. And I'm this kid, like, I, we're talking about love and unity. But in the house, we're, we're, we're behaving like a normal family would behave. We we cook dinners together and we watch television and, you know, there's, you know, a little garden in the back where we grow carrots and we walk the dog and, you know, stuff like that. It totally normal. Has yeah. all the trappings, yeah. but there isn't that love. Mm. So that'll really mess with your head, especially so as a kid. Is that why you kind of stiff armed the religion for a while? I think that I saw a lot of hypocrisy there yeah. and I really wanted to, I needed to, like a lot of kids do, post-adolescents do, or just needed to jettison the religion of my parents mm -hmm. and go on my own journey. And I moved to New York to become an actor. I moved here in, at age 20 and uh, went to NYU and packed up a van and some boxes and- Off you went. Off to the big city to follow my dream. How did you know, um, because you know there are ways that you deal with anger, emotions, and all that stuff that you learn. I mean, back in the day, people just swept their stuff under the carpet. Nobody yeah. was having in-depth, meaningful conversations. They yeah. just want it to go away, and we'll all forget about it. But how did you learn any of those life skills, or did you? What did you learn in terms of life skills from from your upbringing? Um. Yeah, I was not very. Uh, not very much good of that. No. Oh, <laughs> not many no. good life skills. Yeah. It really was like, like I said, I, yeah. I struggled with anxiety and, and depression and addiction. And, and then that kind of forced me um, after a bout of very serious depression to go into therapy. It was about 20 years ago, maybe a little over 20 years huh. ago. And, that's when I started doing my work. So it wasn't until my late 30s late that 30s. I started kind of like adulting. And I don't really feel like I I found myself until my 40s. And so I just have a weird journey because I didn't become like a TV celebrity until I was like 39, 40 years wow. old. I was I had been kicking around as an actor for a long time before uh, The Office took off. So the bright-eyed kid who packed up his boxes went to NYU and saw like stars. What were you imagining back then that your life would be like? Well, I, in all honesty, the life that I'm getting to lead right now is absolutely beyond my wildest dreams. And uh, I still don't quite understand it because I was this nerdy kid who played Dungeons and Dragons in suburban Seattle, you know, and played the bassoon in orchestra and I was on Model United Nations. And now I'm like... <laughs> 
this celebrity from being on a TV show, which is great. I'm so glad to have been on The Office. It's wonderful and some other work that I've done. And it's, but it's pretty trippy to become a celebrity. That's not what I was seeking. I was not seeking celebrity. I really wanted to be a theater artist. I wanted to be on Broadway and off Broadway. I wanted to be in a theater company and play different roles and be in plays. So I had a, a much, I still love the theater and I would love to go back and do more theater, but I had a much smaller vision of what my life and career would be. Were you good from the jump? Like when you started your, when you began acting on stage, whatever, did it, did, did you immediately go, yeah, this is, this is it. I I got this. Yeah. It's, it's funny when I, um, like a lot of kids from the seventies and eighties, I was kind of raised by a television. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I'd get home from school and the TV would go on. So it was just reruns. Yeah. And, it was like watching those TV shows and those comic characters. I was like, I can do that. I want to do that. Like, who'd you watch? I watched like, you know, Klinger or yeah. Radar from yeah. MASH, yeah. right? Yeah. Or any of the characters on Cheers mm-hmm. or Taxi was a favorite, mm-hmm. like Reverend Jim from Taxi. You know, Bob Newhart show. I loved all of the crazy comedic sidekicks. Right. Lenny and Squiggy. Oh, yeah, Lenny and um, Squiggy. Uh, I loved those characters and I was like, I want to do I that. I can do that, yeah. And I, I never really imagined that I ever would get to do that and actually be an amazing kind of sidekick comedic character. Mm-hmm. But, you know, was I good from the jump? I was good at certain things. I was good at being funny. I was mercurial. I was quick on my feet, but I needed to learn a lot about acting yeah. uh, at school. How, how did you know you were funny? I made people laugh. You do it? No. But I I moved to this new high school in Chicago from Seattle and um, I took my kind of my first acting class and I did this uh, exercise right from the uh, from the get-go and it made everyone laugh <laughs> and then all the cute girls came up and were oh, like, really? oh, you're so funny. Oh my gosh. You should come sit at our lunch table. Oh, What's oh. your name? I'd love to get to know you better. And and I was like, here, I'm this pimply, nerdy, bassoon-playing kid from Seattle, and I'm in this new high school. I was like, okay, I think I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sticking what, with that comedy thing. What did you do that thing. mad everyone, everyone cracking up? Do you remember? I It was an exercise called uh, Private and Public. So you act how you would normally act in your room without anyone yeah, watching. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and it's not, it's not supposed to be like performative at all. It's just like you in your room, and then people just react. So- I was in my room and I put on an Elvis Costello song on the on the record player and and then I just started like thrashing around yeah. and dancing and acting just ridiculous. <laughs> so that's uh that that brought down the oh house. Oh my gosh. So and, the chicks were digging you. You were you go this is a sweet spot for me. Yeah, the rest is history. I no more chess team, no <laughs> more mo- model United Nations. What happened to the bassoon? <laughs> no more bassoon. Oh no. All right, so you do some work on the stage, and that kind of work, I mean, that's instant right there. That's tough. How did your Broadway stuff go, or your off-Broadway stuff? It went great. You know, I had a lot of struggles, but I got out of school, and I did Shakespeare in the Park, and I did a, a, a touring Shakespeare Theater Company uh, called The Acting Company, mm-hmm. and then some regional theater. You know, I was just working my way up, you know, treading the boards, as they say. So in the arena stage, the Guthrie Theater, and just playing lots of different roles, comedic and serious roles. Uh-huh. And um, and then did some off-Broadway, got a couple of small Broadway gigs. And then I realized, hold up, as many people do, mm. if I'm ever going to pay off my student loans, if I'm ever going to even dream about owning a house or an apartment, I'm going to need to do some television. Then my sights kind of turned toward L.A. Coming up, how Rain found happiness in ways he did not expect and began his own spiritual journey. Stay with us. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean 
every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. When you start doing something you love, often happiness comes or joy, however you define it. Did you, in those years, feel happy? Did you feel satisfied? Did you feel good about yourself or were you in a funk at times? That's a great question. And that's really the the source of the conundrum because right as, you know, I had an agent, I was working with great theater directors. I was living in New York City. I had a beautiful girlfriend who's now my wife. Um, and on paper, everything was fantastic. This yeah. is what I always, I was living my dream. Mm-hmm. So why was I so unhappy? Yeah. I was really unhappy. I was disconnected. I would wake up at three in the morning, really not sure of like what I was doing or why I was doing it. And I was having these anxiety attacks that would leave me, you know, shaking on the floor, sweating, mm-hmm. uh, really like, like severe panic attacks. And it didn't make any sense to me because society, and this is the thing is external society says like, you know, you follow your dreams, you're going to go to X college, get X degree, get this job, you know, yeah. marry this partner mm-hmm. and make X amount of money mm-hmm. and live at a house in this particular cul-de-sac or whatever. And then you will be happy. Yeah. You will continue to pursue these external things. And once you hit those, you'll be happy. So so Americans think, well, I'm not happy yet, but once mm-hmm. I get this or once I, I make this be. amount right. or once I get with this person or once I have that job, then I will mm-hmm. be happy. So here I was, I was in Brooklyn, yeah, it's Great all girl. And I was just miserable. And and that's, again, that brings me back to kind of my own personal spiritual journey where I felt like maybe by jettisoning the religion of my parents, maybe I've lost mm. something, some, some deeper purpose, some deeper connection. Mm-hmm. That's what kind of forced me. Um, you know, it's Julia Cameron who wrote The Artist's Way, mm-hmm. a fantastic book, um, have you ever done The Artist's Way? Mm-mm, mm-mm. Oh, it's so great. Is it amazing? Oh, it's so great. Yeah, it's um, amazing. It's so You do these journaling morning pages. It shows you that everyone is an artist. Everyone is a writer. Everyone mm-hmm. is a poet. And it just takes you on a, a beautiful, spiritual, creative journey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but Julia Cameron, the author of that, who I'm a huge fan of, she once said, I come to spirituality not out of virtue, but out of necessity. Mm. So that's how I feel like it was for me. So it took me a long time to figure out the balance of living at peace with myself, loving myself, knowing myself mm. deeper. Because um, you have a, you know, you have a kid that was abandoned as a toddler. That creates a rift, mm-hmm. you know, in the soul. Mm-hmm. That's right when you're, you have that mother bond kind of situation going on and. Um, which is so crucial. But finally, like in my 40s-ish, mm-hmm. I found some kind of balance where I was able to really enjoy the craft of acting and also live a rich, rich, deep, fulfilling, meaningful life. Yeah, so interesting. I think about that stuff a lot. It's sort of like, I feel like we're seeking some kind of enlightenment, like something more than the rush I'm going to get from getting that great interview with Rain or or doing that show or, oh, we're traveling, we're going to the Olympics and all these fun things. And for me, I feel like there are high points. You know, you got married, you had the baby, it's a girl, you know, you won the award and then there are the low points, the marriage Mm -hmm. is over, he died, you know, we're sorry. But most days are neither of those. Most days are Wednesday. And if mm. Wednesday's not fun and Wednesday's not fulfilling, mm. then you can't count on the highs. Like I used to wait for the vacation. It's going to be good when I'm on the vacation. I'll feel so good. And then mm. you are good for then. But it's just like that whole middle because that's most of our lives 
is Wednesday. It's not it's not yeah. either of the other two. And I think sometimes I feel like I miss that. Like I got to pay attention and go, okay, like let's have a good Wednesday and let's make sure we get there. That's such an important aspect of the spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. I think there's more to spirituality than that. But this idea, and the Buddhists do it very well, of living in the moment, cherishing each breath, living in gratitude for what we have. All the faith traditions urge us toward being of service to other people, kind of living in a a humble awe of the universe on a daily basis. That's when we find the rich, meaningful connections that we can have with other people. We certainly find it in our family, but then there's a greater family Mm -hmm. and an ever-expanding, ever-widening embrace of what family is and and service to others and community. But living in that rich, meaty stuff, mm-hmm. that's where you find joy um, is is in those in, in those little things and not in the in the vacation and the highs and the fame and the success and the yeah. and the raise and and all yeah. of the stuff that yeah, we yeah. are so manically, frantically chasing yes. out there. Yeah. Uh, And we're not turning inward the way we need to. That's so true. I feel like in the mornings when I try to set my day, Mm. I do some meditation. I do a little, I do an exercise where I go through and check on my, I ask my body, my mind, my emotional self, and my spirit, like, what do you need? Mm. One by one. Body, what do you need today? You You need a walk in the park? You're gonna do that. So- Write down that you're doing that walk in the park. Nice. Intellectually, what do I need? Like I was listening to your book on tape. I liked listening to it. I have it, but I somehow yeah. I liked you. Re- I said, well, you know what? I, I'll take a little more of that today. Like that'll be my intellect, my emotions. What What do I need? Um, I need. I didn't get to hug my kids last night because I got home too. That's on my. And spiritually, what am I seeking in that moment? Like, what do I need? Mm. But I also write in my journal, like, dear God, thank you for this precious day. It'll come only one time like this. So mm. let me see what, what you have for me today. The lessons, the love, you know, write it out. But when you have conversations with God, how is it? Like, what is your communication? <laughs> <laughs> I love that question. So I have a chapter in the book called The Notorious G-O-D, <laughs> which is a, a reinvention, a re-examination of what God is. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really important conversation to be having. In mm. fact, I pitched a show on it. Oh, uh, I created a show called The Notorious G.O.D. where it would be me going around investigating what God was and how <laughs> to reinvigorate God in the modern world or the idea of of God or the higher power. And of course, it was it was passed on by all of the TV networks. One of the things I explore in there is we have this idea of God, I call him Sky Daddy, <laughs> where there's like this Sky daddy on a cloud that's going to fix our problems. He's very patriarchal, very yeah. male, judgmental. Like, yeah. is Hoda being, is Hoda sinning and keeping track right. of it and, and judging us all and meddling? And, and this idea of God is very pervasive in the mm-hmm. Judeo Christian mm-hmm. world. It's a very immature idea of what God is. And, it's one that I needed to get rid of. Mm. So in my journey and in my studies, I just did a lot of prayer and meditation and investigation about what God could be. And, you know, long story short, there's a lot more to this in the chapter, but I view God as being much more akin to something like beauty Mm. or love than an entity like a dude, Mm -hmm. you know? Not that I don't believe that God has a consciousness and a will Mm -hmm. and that we can't turn to this beauty, love, art, truth, essence Mm -hmm. that's something beyond our our comprehension and we need to. My daily practice is a daily surrender to Mm. this higher power. And like you said, I think awe, curiosity, and gratitude, especially gratitude, are really important Mm. and key components in connecting with a higher power. Awe, that's interesting. Yeah, awe of, you know, when you think about like, wow, this planet. Yeah. If this planet was like a thousand miles further away from the sun, like we wouldn't have enough light and everything on it would die. And if it was like a couple thousand miles closer to the sun, it would burn up. Like 
my lungs move. Look at the pumps <laughs> in my body. I have this lungs going in and out. I have this heart that's going right. And, and my brain is thinking and um, it is absolutely, every breath is a miracle. Mm-hmm. I'm a living, walking miracle. Everyone on here on the streets mm-hmm. of Manhattan is an unrepeatable miracle mm-hmm. of God and the universe. Mm-hmm. And if you can find that, especially in nature, in the forest, uh, in the sky and the stars, in the sunlight, in the, in the, in the hummingbirds, mm-hmm. um, that is living in prayer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's just as important as any like verbalized mm-hmm. prayer. So the other aspect of that is is gratitude. And, you know, in positive psychology, they talk a lot about gratitude. And I have a little gratitude text chain with uh, some buddies. Yeah. And every morning we text to each other five things we're grateful for. Uh, and it's amazing how I can just be like grumpy and my coffee. Yeah. And, oh, this thing was late. And, why can't I? Yeah, yeah. and then I do five gratitudes mm-hmm. and it just... It just shifts on shifts your access yeah. just a teeny, teeny bit toward like, huh. oh, this is what's working. And even it's like, I'm grateful for this water. I'm grateful for this new jacket yeah. I got. Or yeah. it doesn't have to be huge and profound yeah. because we have a tendency to look at the negative And it's important to be shifting towards awe, curiosity, uh, and gratitude. The... Um, the great writer thinker Annie Lamott mm-hmm. has a book. I love her. Yeah. Which one? A, a help, thanks, oh, wow. Oh God, yeah. yes. The three essential prayers: help, thanks, wow. So we ask God for help. We we thank God for what we have, mm-hmm. and wow, that's the awe part. You know, like wow, I get to do this, and living in that, living in that kind of awesome gratitude. It's. It's hard, mm-hmm. but you know we, we get little touches of it mm-hmm. and glimpses of it, and then it starts to seep into your dailiness. I get it's so funny you bring up Annie Lamott. First of all, we love her. You know, she's amazing. She sent me this little necklace Whoa. thing, and it said, God's got this, because I was going through something with my daughter, and she was like, wear it, never take it off. And oh. I wore it, and I never took it off. And she said the one prayer that she always prays is, uh, God, I'm here, and I'm available. Like she mm. said, that's the only one. She said, that's all I need. And every morning I start with that. I'm yeah. here and I'm available. And then from there, things open for her. So there are things that she she sees. And when, when there's a need, she's there. And she said, and sometimes it is just taking a second to, to pause and acknowledge, you know, all those things. Yeah. I love her books. Don't you love her? I do. She's what, amazing. Just a brilliant and funny. She's like you. She's funny and deep. Usually you get funny or you get yeah. deep. You rarely get both things. And this, by the way, your book is full of all kinds of, of great <laughs> humor. So you talked about being on your knees, depression, addiction, like that's the lowest of the low. Yeah. Just to even start with the first step up, how did you go from a pile on the floor to like, what was the first step? Because there are people listening who feel like that. They're at that low point in their life. Well, I did things kind of backwards. So normally you're on your knees, you're like, I need help. help And you go to maybe a 12-step program or you go into therapy. And those are, are great and have helped me tremendously. But for me, it started with the God question, actually. In the 90s, when I was on this spiritual kind of quest and journey, I really needed to know if I believed in God or not. This is why I did this pondering and searching and and reading, and I decided that I did. And that's when I started in prayer. So I started in, yeah. in prayer, and I feel like then that led me to get some therapy because I knew that just things were really out of whack, and I needed to kind of look at my behavior patterns and look at the trauma from my childhood, which is really important to unpack. And I want to make a really important point here. You know, I've talked about this sometimes and and it's funny, like in the YouTube comments, it's kind of like, oh, you're blaming your parents. You're blaming your parents. I'm not blaming my parents. My parents were a product of their time. They were going through whatever they were going through. But whatever trauma was perpetrated on us by parents, because Parents are doing the best they can, mm-hmm. but they make a lot of mistakes, you know? But we do need to unpack that yeah. to, to achieve a greater sense of balance and to mm-hmm. understand ourselves better. How did you explain God to your kids? Because my kids recently were like, I don't see God. I don't, I don't see God. Yeah. God's here. How do, how do you explain the concept? How did you explain the concept? 
Um, that's a great question. I don't remember any specific technique, mm. but um, I I think that it's, I, I talk about in the book how, you know, America is so uh, bifurcated, you know, mm-hmm. of the red states and blue states and whatnot. But there is also a tendency like the blue states, the coastal cities mm-hmm. meditate, but mm-hmm. don't pray. And in the red states, they pray, but don't meditate mm-hmm. a little bit. So I think it's important to do both. Yeah. So we did from a very early age, pray and meditate mm-hmm. with my son. We mm-hmm. We would literally sit in stillness and silence and openness and just kind of measure our breath mm-hmm. and and seek to still the mind, quiet the mind and be in the moment. And so many things open up when you, when you do that. Mm-hmm. And so much access opens up. And then we would pray and mm-hmm. deeply pray. And um, I don't know how I mm-hmm. would describe God. I think that f- for me, so much of my connection to God is in nature. Mm-hmm. So I know that when we would... Um, be outside or be in nature, we can just witness the beauty and mystery mm-hmm. and majesty of the divine mm-hmm. all around us. It's not some, again, it's not some sky daddy. Yeah. yeah. You said your dad passed during COVID. Yeah. What did you lose uh, when he died? Well, you know, he was my principal bond because I went with him as a child. So he was he was my dad, but our our connection was really ferocious and deep and ancient. And uh, it was a profound loss. I write about it in the book um, because I had an incredible realization when he passed, which was um, in the Baha'i faith, you prepare the body for burial. It's similar in the, to the Jewish faith and many other faith traditions. So we had to... My myself and his then wife, his widow, we uh, washed the body in preparation mm. for a burial. And when I was there with his dead body, um, which is it's it's terrifying and sad and overwhelming, but it's actually very healing. And I think there's a reason why humans, through time, prepared bodies for burial because when you're witness to the body in that way, it became so abundantly clear to me that that was not my dad. Hmm. That body was not my father. That body was a vessel. He, his essence, his light, his spirit, his heart, his soul, inhabited that body for his 79 years. Hmm. Um, And it had passed on. And I didn't feel like, oh, his life was like, snuffed out, Mm -mm. but it had moved on and moved forward. Um, And and that brought me some peace. Like we're going to bury the body, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to Mm -hmm. dust. Mm -hmm. The vessel is going away now, but um, absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, Took me several years to, I won't even say get over it, but to really effectively process the grief Mm -hmm. there. But at the same time, like I still talk to him and I still really believe that (laughs) those that have passed um, uh, are on a a different level of consciousness and a a different plane. You can call it heaven if you want. And they're there for us. (laughs) And I have conversations with him and I feel his, I feel his presence. I feel his spirit. And honestly, I feel his help too and I can I can call on him for for help and assistance. You're still looking for guidance from your dad, huh? I still am. Yeah, we yeah. all are, I guess, right? Yeah. Did you have all of the meaningful conversations that you wanted or needed to have uh with him before he before he died? Yeah. Um You did. I did. I, I you know, I, I keep coming back to this phrase like I've done the work. And you can say, well, the work never ends, but I, for whatever reason, have an insatiable curiosity about figuring out why I am the way that I am <laughs> and what the hell happened to me. Yeah. And I I don't understand people that just don't want to go there right. and don't want to dig. Don't want to know. I want to dig deep with tremendous curiosity into my parents and grandparents and the choices they made yeah. and 
why did they do the things they do? And why do you always behave this way? And um, I remember one time I, I was very fortunate to be able to do some therapy with my dad. I've never told the story Wait, before, wow. but so to just get to under, to dig into some family yeah. stuff. And, you know, I, uh, I said to him, like, like when him and my stepmom would, would fight, which was frequently, he would always like, look out the window and it'd be like, a, see a tree or something. And he would go like, huh, isn't that a beautiful tree outside? And it would drive me crazy. Wait, in the, after the fight? Or? In the middle of the oh, fight. Oh, in the middle of it. Okay, yeah. that's right. They'd be fighting and yeah. then he'd be like, oh, what a beautiful <laughs> bird. Look at, there's a little sparrow. And, yeah. and I asked him like, what are you doing? Why, why did you do that? That was so weird for me. You know, you're 10, 11, 12 years old and you see like, is this how people act? What's going right. on? So my dad- told a story about how he he had had a really traumatic uh, childhood. And yeah. his, his mom died. He was really abused by his dad. He was left alone with his kid sister for weeks at a time oh, with like my. no food in the house. They'd have to go borrow food from neighbors. Like it's kind of like Charles Dickens kind of stuff. I mean, it was oh, really, really bad. And he said that when things would get really bad, he would always kind of look for something beautiful and he would like long for the beauty of that thing. And that would take him out of his pain and his agony. And then it all came together. Well, of course, <laughs> he's fighting. He's in this really loveless, terrible marriage. And they're fighting. And so he's looking out the window and looking at a pretty bird or a pretty tree. <laughs> and it's that's how our trauma as a child affects us and how it it guides Oof. us and interacts with us as adults. Okay, I could cry for an hour hearing that story. I don't know what it is about that story. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, it gets yeah, that a- told you everything about him. Yeah. Like you learned the whole nut right there. How about him going to therapy? Most dads wouldn't think about it. Believe me. How did you, how did that happen? He didn't, he resisted tooth and nail. He hated yeah. therapy and psychology. He thought I was just such a, just a, hippie weirdo going to that stuff. He was so old school about it, but you know, I was going through a really hard time and, Mm -hmm. um, and he, he bravely showed up and he said like, he was very judgment. We went to this, this place uh, uh, called PCS in in Scottsdale Mm -hmm. and you do intensive retreats. And he said he was really skeptical and, but then he came in and he just had a wonderful experience and uh, it was very warm and, and he learned a lot. Here's another story around wow. that. My dad would play opera music and classical music nonstop. I mean, just like from the second he woke up, he'd put mm. on albums, operas and classical music, and mm-hmm. he would be singing it. And he mm-hmm. knew all of the composers. And for me, of course, as soon as I discovered punk rock, I was like in the Black Flag and the Clash. And <laughs> I just wanted anything yeah. other than classical. And And I asked him about that as well. And His mom died of tuberculosis when he was nine years old and she left him her record collection of classical music. So he had this little phonograph and this stack of classical records and opera records and he would play them over and over again as a memory of his mother. So again, these direct connections of trauma in his life and how they affected and interacted with me. Like we take this stuff, we carry it forward in such interesting ways. Thank God you dragged into therapy. That is so amazing though, that that was able to be uncovered and that you learned everything. Cause like, like you said, when people write in the comments, oh, your parents did the best they can. You know that better than anybody. I mean, you're, you're like reading this stuff. So lo and behold, you're a dad. So now you've got to start parenting. So when you started like, what was your blueprint? How did you, you knew that this was what you had grown up with. It wasn't what you wanted. You'd been to therapy. So who were you modeling your parenting after? Not my parents. Yeah. So my wife and I, my my wonderful wife of 25 years, wow. uh, Holiday Reinhorn. Fortunately, we were very much on the same page and we you know, we wanted to raise him as as consciously and as lovingly as mm. as possible. Um, you know, I think that you know, I, I wish I could do some things different. When yeah. I look back in retrospect, I was still too much of a workaholic when he was a kid, and 
trying to seek my own self-esteem from work and success in mm -hmm. in showbiz. And so I was really hyper-driven in a way that took me away from him mm -hmm. a lot. Um, and I wasn't always the nicest guy because I was fried and not terribly happy yeah. through lots of that. But yeah, it's it's been a wonderful hmm. it's been a wonderful process and a really it's really difficult to raise kids in this day and age. I think it's always difficult to raise kids and then Harder now. and then but now they're up against so much this mental health crisis with young people is just you see it's it? staggering. Yeah. Oh my god, yes. I do a lot of talking at college campuses and I talk about, you know, my journey and, and mental health and spirituality and a little bit about the office mm -hmm. and uh, and I see it, you know, kids are hurting, young people are are really hurting. So when you tell them that at the peak of your career when you were at the office, when everyone thought, wow, Dwight's riding high, and you weren't happy, yeah. even then when you, that was like the mountaintop, how do you tell that story and what do you hope that the kids will take from that? Well, that there's, there is never an external solution hmm. to finding well-being. Um, we're never going to find it outside of ourselves. Mm. Try as you will. I mean, at that point in time, I had like marriage and money and fame and a great job and creativity and and uh, a nice house and anything, you know, beyond my wildest mm -hmm. dreams. I won't say um, that I was like miserable on the office. That's mm -hmm. not true. But I was still out of balance and it wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. And us humans have that, uh, it's never enoughness ishness where, you know, it's just like, I wanted, I just wanted more, you know, it's that, it's that lust and that greed in our hearts of, um, which isn't necessarily like lust for sex and greed for money, but it's that, mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, if we don't feel like we're enough, we will just try and mm -hmm. put all of these kind of like square pegs into round holes and, and stick band-aids on us and try and, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're hungry ghosts, as they say in <laughs> Buddhism, you know, um, hungry ghosts stuffing our faces with what we think will fill us and fulfill us, but it doesn't really. So fortunately, while I was going through that, I was also, you know, digging deep in my recovery program and in, and in, you know, and in therapy and mm -hmm. in my marriage and, you know, was able to kind of set the ship aright. For the mental health crisis that you see for young people, I mean, it's very concerning. Like, and I think people say I have anxiety, and you're trying to figure out like what's the root, why, what are we, what are we talking about here? And there, you know, people take certain medications, or they do this and they do that. Everyone's got their own trip, but um, how do you see it going forward? And what are you kind of hoping that I don't know what do what do kids need that they're not getting? Because I feel, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer is either. There's a couple of things I've learned along the way. I loved your description about like, what do you need mm -hmm. in the morning, body, mind, and mm -hmm. spirit? What do you need? That's beautiful. I think that anxiety itself is not the problem. You know, anxiety is a helper. Anxiety is there to say, you need something. Yes. So usually we're not in touch with that. So it just manifests as a, ah, ah, right? But if you listen closely and deeper and get better at it, the anxiety can tell you, it's like, I need a hug. I need a nap. Mm -hmm. I need reassurance. I need to connect with someone. I need to be in nature. Mm -hmm. I need to get a better night's sleep. Mm -hmm. It can be a helpful uh, warning sign of an unmet need. Mm -hmm. So- what you have in an anxiety crisis, like what's going on right now, is you have an entire society vibrating with unmet needs mm -hmm. that people aren't aware of. And I truly believe, Hoda, that in spirituality, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Buddhist, Baha'i, um, that there are spiritual tools that can help fill those unmet mm. needs. Mm -hmm. When you have a connection with your higher power, when you are able to surrender, when you're able to say, thy will be done, not mine. Mm. When you are able to use meditation 
uh, awe, curiosity, gratitude, these tools, and to to sync all of that up with some kind of higher purpose in service to others, like these are the tools that humanity needs right now on a on a societal level. We also need them on a personal and individual level. And there's there's a great deal of truth and wisdom to be found in man's great spiritual wisdom and faith traditions mm-hmm. that we've kind of, because humanity's kind of abandoned religion, we've kind of lost sight of mm-hmm. um, things that can really help us. Coming up, what Rain is making space for at this moment in his life. After the break. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. The title of this podcast is Making Space, so we try to you know, make space in our lives. I try to make some space in the morning because my day gets kind of jammed up and crazy. So let's pretend you have a blank slate day. The wife's busy, kids in school. You open your eyes in the morning and the day is yours. You don't have a work day. You can do what you will with this day. How would you spend that one day? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. I've never been asked Mm -hmm. that before. Well, my favorite mornings are mornings that I can really spend on my kind of physical and mental and spiritual health. Mm -hmm. So if I'm able to get up, I have this long driveway that's on a big hill. Mm -hmm. And if I can like run up and down my driveway. Wow. That's good. Starting with that. Okay. And then like do some workouts like in my garage with some weights or whatever like that. And then, and then if I can do a cold plunge, I have a cold plunge. You do that? Yeah. How long do you sit in there? I only go in for like three or four minutes. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, how do you get through the three minutes? You breathe. Yeah. Are you no music? You just get in there. No, you just breathe and you accept the cold. You embrace the cold. You don't fight it. Yes. You're just like this is just a sensation. Sensation. It's just a sensation. Okay. And then you enjoy the breath, savor the breath, and then it really is. It's incredibly revitalizing. And then I do some meditation and prayer and some spiritual reading, which I think is also really important. Is reading from the holy texts of the world to glean some greater connection from people far wiser than me. Do you read from the holy books or do you have other books that are, you, you know, know, I keep everything. I keep a Bible on my desk. Yeah. I also keep the Dhammapada, the yeah. writings of the Buddha on my yeah. desk. I also have Baha'i books around. Yeah. So, so you, all that. Yeah, all that. But, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of contemporary yeah. wisdom thinkers like Thich Nhat Hanh mm-hmm. and Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. There's some, you know, have some wonderful uh, ideas and wisdom. And... Uh, and then, like, if I really have my mm-hmm. druthers, like, sometimes I, I get too busy as a producer and with scheduling and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But at heart, I'm still that dorky theater mm-hmm. artist. Oh. And so I like to do something creative, like yeah. uh, write some poetry or mm-hmm. write a script or start writing an essay mm-hmm. or y- even making a video or taking mm-hmm. some some pictures or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then usually I'll play some tennis or some yeah. pickleball. Because that's awesome. Oh, that sounds like a really good day. You go yeah. to, are you an early bird or uh, do you usually sleep in? I would love to sleep in. No. But my problem is I wake up at 6.30 every morning. Every morning. morning. So and, like, Bling! and when's bedtime for you? I'm going to age myself here. I'm going, I'm going to bed at like grandpa hours, what? like 10.30, 11 at night. That's late. That's late? Well, you're, you're a morning show host. By the way, all of us, are. if we're not in bed by 8 o'clock, it's over. 
And even wow. on weekends, I'm, I make it till nine and then I tip over. It's too, what am we wow. going to do? Yeah. 10.30. Wow. Yeah. You're rock on and roll. 10.30 at night. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Living like a rock star. You got to get Rain Wilson's book. It's called Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Rain, thank you so much. Hold I love up. talking to you. Oh, I love spot- speaking uh, with you. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. guys thank you so much for listening and for coming on this journey with me if you like what you heard and i hope that you do please give making space a five-star rating and review on apple podcasts and make sure you tell your friends follow us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you're listening right now making space with hoda Kotb is produced by allison berger and alexa kasavecchia along with amanda sidman abigail russ kate saunders and our production assistant is megan cilio Our associate audio engineer is Juliana Mastrarilli. Our audio engineers are Bob Mallory and Catherine Anderson. Original music by John Estes. Bryson Barnes is our head of audio production. Missy Dunlop-Parsons is our executive producer. Sharice Williams-Laredo is our senior producer. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.